thankful unto him and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. Now over to the New Testament and the book of Philippians, please. The Epistle of Joy, as it's known, Philippians. Just one verse in chapter 3, it's the first verse of Philippians. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. And that will do for a reading. We were noticing last night that the subject of worship is not really a two-dimensional subject at all. Uh, worship is a multifaceted truth in Scripture, running from Genesis through to Revelation, and that's reflected in the number of words in the original languages of Scripture which are used or translated as worship. It's not a singular word in the Old Testament, neither is it a singular word in the New Testament. I noted down here some of the Old Testament words, and I'll try and pronounce them to you. Um, if I get them wrong, you'll probably not know anyway, but um, I, I was told I'm terrible at pronunciation. If you just go fast and with great certainty, nobody really knows, and as long as you're consistent. Well, there are so many Old Testament words in the original language of Hebrew which express the idea of worship in different ways. gives us a sense of just how big a subject this is. Um, in both Old and New Testament. Let me just give you some of them by way of illustration. Some of the better known ones. Halal. Some of the Psalms are called the Halal Psalms and that's the word from which we get the word Hallelujah. And I know here at Plains you're forever shouting out Hallelujah and praising the Lord. And uh, Well that would be biblical actually because that word is used more than 100 times in the Old Testament in that context. And it carries the thought of exaltation, which is the word I put over uh, this afternoon's session. So when we say or sing, or dare say even shout, I don't know, if we were to say the word hallelujah, then we are saying praise the Lord. We are exalting in the Lord and expressing that with that word, which is an Old Testament word. There's another word, um, which I don't know if you pronounce it like this, um, I'm going to say it anyway, yada. Uh, Y-A-D-A-H and that means to acknowledge something in public um, it's often translated as giving thanks and it's expressing worship in this way for example in Psalm 9 in verse 1 it says I will give thanks, that's the word to the Lord with my whole heart I will recount all of his wonderful deeds Another few, um, the word uh, barak or barak, a verb which means to bless, uh, occurs, um, for example, in Psalm 103 in verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul. And that's that Hebrew word, um, which is that verb to bless. And then uh, another couple, shaba, um, S-H-A-B-A-H, means to laud or to praise, to speak well, to eulogize someone. And lastly, the word ruah, R-U-A, and this is a verb, and it does mean to shout to the Lord in joy and praise and thanksgiving. For example, in Psalm 100 and verse 1, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. That's that Hebrew word there. 
It's interesting that most of the words that refer to worship in the Old Testament are words that speak about sound. And they're also words that are finding the proper context in vocal expressions of sound and in public, by and large. And that would be the kind of theme of the Old Testament. Now it's not exclusive because there's so much worship that's expressed, for example, in the giving of sacrifices within the sacrificial system and other ways that worship was expressed. But by and large it's expressed vocally and it's expressed publicly. One uh, commentator said this, In worship we do not expand, contribute to, increase God's greatness and glory by our words. But we announce it, we declare it, we make it known, we proclaim the worth and majesty that is already and will always be true of him. So it's not as if by our words we are increasing and building the greatness of God by our words. But what we are doing is expressing an appreciation of what already exists. And so we worship in that sense. Now I read Psalm 100 because I want to see in this psalm the connection between what we were talking about last night and what we want to talk about this afternoon. Last night, if you were here and anywhere, we were thinking about the subject of education, that is, learning and the necessity of learning in order to worship. The necessity of getting to know God and either being educated or educating ourselves in God. And we do that, of course, as he has revealed himself in the scriptures. And we see this in Psalm 100, that these subjects of exaltation and education are intrinsically linked in this psalm. If you look at the psalm, let me just try and illustrate that to you. It begins with the idea of exaltation, rejoicing. That's really what exaltation means. And he says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. And there you have exaltation. And the psalmist is exulting, the psalmist is praising, the psalmist is singing. He is expressing joy that's in his heart in connection with the Lord. But then he goes to verse number 3 and he speaks about education. And there's our word, know. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. You get education, know, he says. And then he comes back into exaltation, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. And be thankful unto him and bless his name. And then in verse 5, you're back into education. We're learning about God. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, his truth endures to all generations. And you have this transition between knowing things about God and expressing an appreciation of them. Education and exaltation. Well, last night uh, I read from Luke chapter 1, verse 46 and verse 47, and I'll deal with that later on today, um, more about Luke chapter 1 later. And you remember when Mary and Elizabeth are having this conversation about the birth of the Lord Jesus that is yet to take place. And Luke 1, verse 46 and verse 47, it tells us that Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord. And my spirit hath rejoiced 
in God my Saviour. Now we'll think about magnifying the Lord later on in exaltation, um, but you see here that Mary's speaking about rejoicing in God my Saviour. Here is this key component to worship that we want to focus on this afternoon, the need for rejoicing, the need for joy and its expression in worship. And you have these components expressed there. It's interesting as well when Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 1 also is going to praise the Lord for the Lord's intervention in her life. It says this, that Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoiceth in the Lord. Mine horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies because I rejoiced, or I rejoice in thy salvation. And that element of joy, that element of rejoicing is present in these occasions and others when worship is being expressed to the Lord. There's an absence of staleness, coldness, sterility. It's not just the engagement of the mind and the mouth, but the heart is fully engaged in the subject matter as the mind is engaged as well and the voice, the mouth is used to express what is pouring out of the heart and that is worship there is joy there is rejoicing now it may well be the case in the west of Scotland we need to have explained to us what joy actually is because it's not something that perhaps we're so familiar with or certainly expressing it but um, the noun joy in the New Testament uh, means an experience of gladness. Now that may not help you one little bit, but that's what the dictionary says. An experience of gladness. Um, the word rejoice, slightly different word, means to be in a state of happiness or well-being. And so there's your dictionary definition. Tim Keller, who some of you read, says this in relation to joy. He defines it as it is delight in God for the beauty and worth of who he is. It's the opposite of hopelessness or despair. But he says this, there is a counterfeit. And the counterfeit is elation that rests in blessings and not the blesser. A joy that can be lost because its foundation is circumstances and not God. Now Keller is pointing out, sometimes we call it the difference between joy and happiness, where happiness depends on things that happen, whereas joy depends upon God who is unchangeable, and therefore joy can be rooted and founded on that solid foundation of the person of God. And so there's a difference between that happiness, depending on happenings, because when good things happen, we're happy. When bad things happen, we're not so happy. But the Christian, being instructed and exhorted and even commanded to be characterised by joy, that which is able, because we can do it because it's rooted in God. Now, a few other comments before we get into it. It's also interesting when you come to your New Testament that joy is the product of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. When you come to Galatians chapter 5, one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. And so joy is produced and therefore experienced by the believer because it is produced by the Spirit of God who indwells us. 
So it's not something that we import, it's something actually that we export because it's created within us by God. So it is not um, somehow grasped at, nor is it um, to be sought in external things, but rather internally God the Holy Spirit produces this joy and we manifest it in acts of worship. We display it in our lives and express it. Uh, one last wee thing, um, just to give a kind of context about joy. Christian joy is very different from a conviction or an idea. I was reading this, and interesting, I never thought too much about this, but um, the article I was reading went into this in great detail, and it says this, the Bible is filled with commands that we do that are sometimes out with our control to do. We read one in Philippians chapter 3. Rejoice in the Lord. Always elsewhere. And again, rejoice. Commands to rejoice, to fear, to be grateful, to be tender-hearted are emotive responses that come from within us. Augustine, that great church father, said this in his prayers. Father, command what you will and then grant to me what you command. And if we have to rejoice in the Lord, and if we acknowledge that that joy is produced by the Spirit of God, we are completely dependent upon God in these matters, and not upon other things. And so Augustine was saying that God commands a certain emotive response from me, but I can't actually do that on my own. I need the work of God in me to actually do that. That's something just to think about um, as I say, that article I was reading went in in great detail. So we come to our little verse in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1. We're going to get practical before I finish, but I just want to fill in some more details about this idea. And Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1 tells us that we need to rejoice in the Lord. That's a key expression this afternoon. Rejoice in the Lord. I was reading around about this subject through the week and I came across a little book in PDF form um, and I managed to read it I read a wee bit each evening this week and it was written by a Puritan called Thomas Brooks and he wrote a strangely titled little book I think it's only about 85 pages in its hard copy form and uh, you wouldn't get away with a title like this nowadays because it's hardly pithy it says An Ark for All God's Knowers now, it doesn't just roll off the tongue so well, um, but then it wasn't written recently. And it's based upon Lamentations 3 and verse 1, The Lord is my portion. And it's a whole book based upon that verse. You'll get it online, it's free, so you can get it in PDF form. It's written in slightly archaic language. Well, not slightly, it is written in archaic language. But it's worth reading in small sizes um, and just pondering what it conveys. It's really worth it. And it speaks about enjoying God, God being the portion for our soul. And he expands this. And part of what he says, I noted, was this. To show what a satisfying portion God is, he has set forth by all these things 
that he may satisfy the heart of man. He goes on, such as bread, water, wine, milk, honours, riches, houses, lands, friends, father, mother, sister, brother, health, wealth, light and life. Brooks says, these are the things that satisfy us. And God actually tells us that these things illustrate and are pictures of how God satisfies us. It's a tremendous study. Think about all these things that God uses to describe himself. Just think even the bread of life. We are satisfied with bread and you can go through all of these things. Wealth, family, light, life, houses and so on. And all of these are taken up by God to instruct us that he is sufficient to satisfy the soul. There's such a breadth and a depth to God and his character and his acts and his words and who he is and what he's done for us to satisfy every aspect of our yearnings. And so he concludes with this, every time you read in scripture that God is a fountain or that in God we have light or the light of life or God is our stronghold, our refuge, our fortress, think about these different pictures of God. Those are the pictures that are telling us what God is for his people and they beckon us to joy in God, to find our delight in him. And that is why, again, some of you read John Piper, that's why his... Um, book Desiring God has this tagline God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him joy now that doesn't mean as Christians we have to be uh, silly about this and think that we have to be joyful and therefore we cannot experience other emotions at the same time it's not that we have to have a superficial um, view of life and deny the realities that we all appreciate, such as sorrow and suffering. And there's so much in Scripture speaks about that. There is a place, obviously, for mourning and for sadness, but joy can coexist with all of these emotions. That's why, for example, the Apostle Paul writes as a suffering Christian when he writes this epistle of joy in Philippians. He's suffering when he writes it. He's experiencing prison and suffering and anguish and yet he writes about joy. That's why in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 10 he says about himself suffering yet always rejoicing. This joy can coexist with the extreme emotions that life produces in our heart. Why can it? Because it's not grounded in those experiences. It's grounded in God. Because the joy flows from the Spirit of God within and the focal point is God himself, then this joy can be ever-present in our experience. And so let's think about this little expression. Rejoice in the Lord. And ask before we do, do we know anything of this? I don't mean are we, are we the sort of Christian who's always going around with a silly grin in his face and pretending that, you know, nothing bad ever happens or anything like that. But in the ups and downs of life, in the hard and good times, the times of sorrow and anguish and pain and suffering that is common to all mankind, as Christians, 
The Spirit of God desires, even in these experiences, to produce joy within the soul. A joy that cannot be experienced apart from the work of the Spirit of God. It is exclusive for the believer. It's why the Christian can go through the trials of life, not circumventing them, but actually experiencing them in a different way from an unbeliever. And that is often noticed in the extremities of life. There's something different about a Christian in them. Rejoice in the Lord. It's in him that we find our joy. Now obviously um, these messages uh, this weekend are really bringing us back to this singular point. And it's our relationship with the Lord as a Christian. We ought to rejoice in him. To think about him, to meditate in him, to learn of him. To think of the beauty of our Lord. We are fundamentally, um, I think you'd agree with this, and I think also by God's design, creatures that appreciate beauty. Whether it is in our environment, when you see a stunning sunset, not so much the sunrise, I don't think, but the sunset, or when you see a, a, a scene before you, or, or something that is beautiful, there's something within you that appreciates that and we appreciate beauty and we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and in him we see beauty we see a beauty of holiness we see a glory of perfection and righteousness and of compassion and, and sinless humanity that which is to be admired, that which is to be gazed upon, that which is to draw out worship from our hearts. As we think about the beauty of the Lord, I noted down some things here, the symmetry of his attributes. We were thinking about this last night, some of the attributes of the Lord uh, and the fact that they all are, are so much in symmetry, one not outweighing the other, but in perfect harmony. And he's full of grace and he's full of truth. And then you think about the, the intricacy of his creative handiwork. And mesmerizing it is as you look around and you just see what he has done and what he's created and the beauty of it. As you think about the splendor of his power, the majesty of his mercy, all of these things. As you think about the extent of his greatness and the limitless goodness that's to be found in him. There is a beauty about our Saviour that doesn't exist anywhere else as we gaze upon him. One writer said this, God's manifestation of himself in creation and providence in scripture, but preeminently in the face of his Son, Jesus Christ, is designed to evoke within us breathtaking delight incomparable joy of which God alone is worthy you know perhaps we have maybe been in I don't know been caused to go to a wrong extreme where expressions of joy and where joy itself 
is seen as something that is secondary to our intellectual understanding of Scripture. It's not true. Our understanding of Scripture should, should um, invoke and should, should draw out by the help of the Spirit of God joy within our soul. We sing happy people and all that and we, we joke at ourselves. We actually joke about ourselves because by and large we're a pretty miserable bunch and we joke about that kind of thing but uh, you know there is a serious point here and it's just this if you're not rejoicing in God you'll be rejoicing in something else if the beauty of Christ is not attracting you the beauty of someone else or something else will be we are designed to appreciate beauty and to be drawn toward it and if something else is more attractive than God and Christ in our life, we will be heading in that direction. So it's a really I'll come to this as a really practical um, challenge in this. And I have to say this about the world in which we live. There may be a beauty about the man-made structures of our world, and I'm not saying there isn't. Whatever these structures are. And when you think about the systems and the, and the um, buildings and the, um, all, that, the, all that man has put within God's creation, all of it is secondary in terms of its beauty. All of it. It is only marked by beauty insofar that it reflects the excellencies and beauty of the Creator. When you think about the order that we can create, not very well, but when you think about the order as a society that we create, or harmony, when you think about that which is morally good, when you think about that which is aesthetically pleasing, mark this, that all of that is secondary. Because the very source of beauty and goodness and, and moral excellence is God himself. And anything else is a pale shadow. So why worship the shadow when you can worship the substance? Why be attracted to that which is secondary rather than be attracted to that which is primary? Why not get to the source rather than see a symptom? Why not worship and appreciate and rejoice in the beauty of our God? And so I just want to come and think now about some questions. How do we actually do that? How do we rejoice in the Lord? If joy is produced by the Spirit of God, if the Lord should be the object, the sphere and the source of that joy, if this is something for a Christian that can coexist, it doesn't have to be a one emotion or emotive condition at a time, but joy can sit alongside sorrow. It doesn't have to be one or the other. How then do you actually rejoice in the Lord? I mean, it's a command after all in Scripture. It's not a suggestion. It is the condition in which God expects us to be found and to live in. Rejoice in the Lord, he says. How do you live this kind of life? How do you cultivate joy in your heart? How do you grow in your delight in the Lord? Well, here are some suggestions. Number one, the word is abiding. Abiding. And 
In your notebook, those of you that are taking notes, just mark down John chapter 15 as the passage to go to under that little word, abide or abiding. The Lord Jesus is teaching in John chapter 15 using the illustration of a vine. And just as I said previously, he uses these illustrations and it all points towards himself. And we see this, that he says, I am the vine. He says, you're the branches. So there's the picture. And he expands that. And he says, just as branches are connected intimately to the vine, he says, so you are connected intimately to me. And the life that exists in the branch flows out through the vine. The fruit that's produced in the branch is produced because it's connected to the vine. You cut the branch off, the branch can't bear fruit. And so he says, as a branch, unless it abides in the vine, cannot bear fruit. You cannot bear fruit unless you abide in me. He says, without me you can do nothing. And when you get down that passage to verse 9 through to verse number 11, he says this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. He says, abide in my love. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Obedience is part of the abiding here. He goes on and he says, As I have kept my Father's commands and abide in his love, these things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might be in you. And that your joy might be full. That's a critical passage. When you think of this whole subject of joy and rejoicing. It's to do with union and communion. It's to do with the fact that we belong to Christ. That expression in Christ. When we get saved we were brought into an unbreakable relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That eternal relationship was established when we trusted Christ as our saviour. But the enjoyment and the fruitfulness of that relationship is dependent upon us abiding the communion that we have with Christ in life. Sometimes it's uh, illustrated in this way as a huge big iron chain. It's unbreakable. That just is a picture of our union with Christ. The fact that we're saved never to be lost. The fact that we belong to Christ, we are in Christ. It's unbreakable. The winds of adversity don't even shift it. But then you've got a silver thread. And that's our communion with Christ. And it just takes a puff of sin to break it. And it needs to be re-established again. Communion. Fellowship. And that idea of spending time dwelling, abiding, keeping close to the Lord Jesus Christ and you do that in a, in a multi, well, multiple ways you do it by forming good relationships with other Christians you do it by making sure you spend time in places like this, in times like this you, you do it by actually developing an interest in the Bible for yourself and putting yourself in the way of good Bible teaching you do it by spending time in prayer alone with the Lord. Not snatching moments here, there and everywhere. But even 10 or 15 minutes settling yourself down, clearing your mind and just, just enjoying some time with him. This is abiding. Changes your life. It changes your perspective and it causes joy. The Spirit of God works in that environment, in that life rhythm. 
and he's able because he's got space to work because you're not filling your heart and mind and life and time and relationships with rubbish and things that are anti-God and people that are ungodly you're actually creating an atmosphere and an environment whereby the spirit of God can actually produce joy and you find yourself rejoicing in the Lord and able to obey that command abide in Christ Second, another we head in. Believing. Believing. Romans 15, verse 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Faith is key to joy. Believing. Abiding and believing. And it's in believing, according to that scripture, that joy, that God would fill you with joy. What's Paul saying? You need to be trusting God. You need to be characterised by believing his word. Again, Peter says this in chapter 1, and he's writing to persecuted Christians, and he says this, that you've not seen him, but you love him. That's faith. You've never seen the Lord Jesus, but you love the Lord Jesus Christ. And although you don't see him, you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. The two things are connected. Faith and joy. Thirdly, meditating. I used to not like that word, meditating. It didn't always have a kind of connotation. I always had this idea of the kind of guy with the lotus position humming away with incense sticks around about him the idea of kind of meditating and it all seemed a bit kind of it lacked um, substance to me, it seemed a wee bit airy-fairy sitting and meditating almost seemed a waste of time far better taking notes or far better doing a word study or far better doing something substantive than meditating I've come to learn that was quite wrong Psalm 19 verse 8 says this the precepts of the Lord are right rejoicing the heart God's word which we dwell upon which we think about, which we ponder which we chew over in our mind I don't know how you do it but take a verse and just let it bounce around inside your head come at it from different angles, ask it, interrogate it ask it questions, why, what when, where, all about this text what does it mean what does it mean Actually, and how does it apply to me? And how does it apply to this area of my life? And that bounce it around in your mind. Don't worry about about covering big chunks of ground in scripture in this sort of area of meditation. Just take bite-sized stuff and chew on it. Psalm 119, verse 162 says, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. George Muller, I don't know if youngers have heard of George Muller. Um, George Muller was the sort of man who had paperback books written about him that he got at Sunday school prizes. That was the sort of thing. And some of you are nodding your heads because you've got that kind of thing stored away. And his story is a fantastic story of faith. And he um, built orphanages and he served the Lord by faith and no fundraising, no tin rattling for him and his work for God. He just totally depended upon God, never broadcasted the need and God met the need of that work miraculously. It's a man of faith. 
He was a man, according to this quotation, who walked by faith, but it took him a long time to learn. But to actually get his joy in the Lord, he had to begin with scripture. He said in his autobiography, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. I just thought about that. There's a man whose to-do list must have been huge. All the cares of running these orphanages for the Lord without any um, guaranteed income or anything like that. All of, all of the hassles of all of that. And he's saying he had arrived at a position in his life where he understood that the most important way for him to start his day was to settle his soul and be happy in the Lord. He says this, in what way would I attain to this settled happiness of soul? How shall we learn to enjoy God? I answer, this happiness is to obtain through reading Holy Scripture. God has revealed himself unto us in the face of Jesus Christ. And upon that face I must gaze. That's a fantastic quote. If you want to be happy in the Lord and rejoicing, you need to get in the Word of God. You need to read the Bible. That's why, for example, in I nearly finished in Philippians 3 and verse 1, the two things are connected. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things. Two things are connected. Rejoicing and writing. To write the same things. Truth leads to joy. The Word of God leads to joy. And so we've thought about meditating, we've thought about believing, we've thought about abiding. Um, not finished yet, but one more. This is the one that none of us like, repenting. Repenting. Martin Luther said this, the whole life of the Christian is one of repentance. You see, sin is that which will choke the life out of your joy. Sin. Or strangle it. And tolerated sin, accommodated sin, will remove the possibility of joy. Squeeze the life out of it. Every time you get a quiet moment, you won't find joy in your soul. You will find sin has left its stain and is sitting there. Tolerated, accommodated sin in the life of the believer will make you miserable. Genuinely make you miserable. People think sin well, people think of sin as, or people think of, um, how am I expressing this? People think of the Christian life as the great killer of joy. Kill joy. And think that reading your Bible is the great kill joy, or, or coming, coming in a Saturday afternoon would just kill your joy. It's the opposite. It's sin that kills your joy. And the greatest unhappiness in your life as a Christian is the point of sin. 
And the younger you learn that, the better for you. Some of us took a long time to learn that. And that's why David, who also took a long time to learn it and learnt it the hard way, in Psalm 51 said this, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Because sin had chased it away. Well, lastly, and this is uh, a wee bit slightly off beam. If it is the case that you are able to do that and cultivate joy and make space for the Spirit of God to produce it and to focus it in Christ and so forth, that's fantastic. But here's another wee helpful thing, I think. I've been reading a lot around this subject, as you can hear by my quotes, but I've um, been actually found it quite an interesting subject to, to research. And I came across a little book that I didn't even know existed um, by C.S. Lewis called Letters to Malcolm. I'd never even heard of this. And in that book, I see if some of you have nodded, so you've obviously heard and read it, but I've never read it. But in this book, he says this statement and then he follows it up. And here's this little thing for you to take away as well. He says, make every pleasure a channel of adoration. Now he expands what he means by that. He said, it's like walking through the woods. You're deep into the woods, there's a thick coverage of trees overhead, but there's patches of sunlight in the ground. You can just picture that. You're walking through the woods and you can see the light streaming in, in little bits. He says, you can see the sunlight and you can trace the beam up through the leaves of the tree back up to the sun. He says, pleasures in life, and I don't mean sin. Pleasures in life are like patches of God's light in the woods of our experience. And you need to learn to chase the sunbeam back up to the sun. It's just fantastic to ponder that. So he tells us what he means by that in case we're not there yet. He says, for example, he says, when you're enjoying friendship with someone else, you're doing something and it's actually a very pleasurable thing. It's a good, wholesome, pleasurable thing. You're doing an activity, whatever it is, and you're enjoying it with someone else. He says this, thank God for that blessing of friendship. He says, but trace the beam back up to God. And remember God's friendship to you. He says, or oh, when you need, and he was still a whole lot of things, when you need to take a drink of ice cold water on a hot day, probably two or three times in Scotland, but remind yourself that if this taste of water is so good, how good and how great must be the God who is the fountain of living water. Chase it, sunbeam right up to the source. And so there's a lot of things for us to take away and think about. If you're really enjoying something here on earth, then think about that. Trace it back up to the source of all good things and cause that to be a source of rejoicing and worship. One hymn, as I close, says this, and here we're back to our focal point. Jesus priceless treasure source of purest pleasure truest friend to me long my heart hath panted till it well nigh fainted thirsting after thee thine I am O spotless lamb I will suffer not to hide thee ask for naught beside thee Jesus 
priceless treasure, source of purest pleasure. Let's just pray and give God thanks.